Father, we just thank you so much for this time. And thank you, God, that we can learn more about this world that we're living in. But God, we confess that we are unable to understand great and mighty things, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we also claim Jeremiah 33, verse 3, that says, If you call upon me, I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And so, Lord, this is our desire that you would bless us with tools, with information, stuff that can really help reach this world. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. My name is Pastor Nel Kanda. I pastor in the series, the Modesto area, and it's a privilege to be here. The name of this presentation is entitled, The Sabbath and Atheism. The next presentation is going to be entitled, Insane or Infidel, What Happens When Hell Does Not Go Out? The third presentation is going to be titled, Ellen White and Food Documentaries. And you're going to learn some wonderful things about modern day health movements and who has been at the root of modern day health movements. So you don't want to miss these presentations. Um, as I said before, the name of this presentation is entitled The Sabbath and Atheism. The Sabbath and Atheism. When you take a good look in our world today, especially in the American culture, the secular culture, you find out that there is actually a strong movement called atheism. You know, it wasn't until the 18th century that somebody identified themselves with the English word atheist. Since that time, that movement has turned into something big, and it's like a juggernaut. I was reading various statistics in America about atheism, and has found out that that, is actually, that movement is actually growing. A lot of people are no longer identifying themselves with the religion or any type of spirituality or a church. Many of them are simply saying, I'm agnostic or I'm an atheist. The word atheist is a combination of two words in Greek the alpha or the a, the negative, and theos, God. So essentially what atheism is, is simply saying, no, God, I do not believe in God, or in, I believe in the non-existence of any deity. It's very interesting when you take a good look in, out in media, out in books, out in the internet, you find out that there is a new breed of atheism, and it's this kind of form of militant atheism. And over the course of the last seven to eight years, there has been many bestsellers that have come out, and many of them are about atheism and the, the belief in uh, the non-existence of God. Some of these million atheism, you can take a good look at these four right here. One of them actually passed away, Christopher Hitchens. These are called the four horsemen of atheism because they're very vociferous atheists. Whenever they have a chance to talk about atheism and why Christianity is wrong, they will take that chance or take that opportunity and they will speak the most vehement things. There you have right there Christopher Hitchens, you have Daniel Dennett, and you have Richard Dawkins, and you also have Sam Harris. Each one of them has done bestsellers that have reached the top of books on lists about atheism. These individuals, are many of them are philosophers and doctors and molecular biologists, and um, they've gone into various debates. You go into YouTube, you can listen to various debates from these guys, and you can see the type of spirit that they have. Well, this group has really taken on a large following, and so this has actually turned into a great movement since the 18th century. Now, the name of this seminar presentation is called The Sabbath and Atheism.
And a lot of people ask the question, wait a minute, what does the Sabbath actually have to do with this modern movement of atheism? I'm going to share with you four or five powerful quotes from inspiration that make a connection between the Sabbath and modern day atheism. Here's the first quotation right here. This is this one right here. It is a constant witness to his greatness, wisdom, and love. Had the Sabbath always been sacredly observed, there could never have been in what? Atheist or an idolater. Watch what she says next right here. Had the Sabbath always been kept, man's thoughts and affections would have been led, would have been led to his maker as the object of reverence and worship. Now watch what she says right here. And there would never have been an idolater or what? an atheist or an infidel. Then watch what she says again right here. It's powerful. If man had always remembered to keep holy the Sabbath, there would never have been a what? An atheist or an infidel in our world. But Satan has made an effort to keep God out of the mind, has worked his plan so as to accomplish this, and having banished God from the memory of man, he puts himself, if possible, in the place of God, even goes so far as to exalt himself above God in compelling the consciousness of men, which God has never done. And that's from the Review and Herald. Now watch this other quotation right here. Had the seventh day always been kept, there would never have been in what? idolater, an atheist, or an infidel. The sacred observance of God's holy day would have directed the minds of men to their creator, the true and living God. Everything in nature also would have brought him to remembrance and would have borne witness to his power and love. Again and again and again, you can see what Ellen White is saying, that had the Sabbath been kept like the way it should have been, there would never have been an atheist in our world today. There is an apparent connection with Sabbath keeping or the lack of Sabbath keeping and atheism. And we're going to find out how that connection um, goes about. Watch what she says right here. When the foundations of the world were laid, then was also laid the foundation of the what? The Sabbath. So there you see from this inspiration, pen of inspiration, that when this world was created, that the Sabbath was actually part of the system of this world. I was shown that if the true Sabbath had been what? Kept, there would never have been an infidel or a what? An atheist. Again and again and again, she's keep, she keeps repeating the same point. You can see the common denominator. If the Sabbath is kept, if the Sabbath would have been kept, if it should have been kept like the way it should have, there would never have been an atheist. So there she makes the connection over and over again that the uh, lack of Sabbath keeping actually is connected to atheism. And we're going to see how that connection really comes to the surface. The observance, now watch this, the observance of the Sabbath would have preserved the world from what? Idolatry. Idolatry. You know, when I was reading these quotations, I was really trying to understand this. How does the Sabbath lead or the lack of the Sabbath keeping lead to atheism? What is the clear connections that we can make from history and see how one event actually leads to another, another movement? You see, when God created this world, he created a perfect world. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, anything God would create, it was what? Good, right? And everything he was created was constantly good, right? When he finally created man, he said it was 
Very good, right? Mankind was the essential, the linchpin for all of these systems. Everything that God created were systems that were interdependent upon other systems. And so when the fall of man took place, it led to a cascading effect upon this entire world. Think of it like this. When you take a good car engine, right? Everything in that car engine, much of it runs together and is connected. In fact, when you take a good look at a very advanced diagram, of a car engine, you can see how complex, how intricate, and how interdependent each system within an engine is, is, is um, you can say how each system is based upon another system. You know what's very interesting? When I had a car, I had a Jeep, okay? I brought this, uh, you know, I hang around with a lot of four-wheelers. Anybody know any big four-wheelers here? Okay, well, when you spend a lot of time in Weimar, Northern California, you get used to uh, a lot of people who are driving these big old Jeeps or these big old trucks with these huge tires. Well, I have some good friends who are some, just some hardcore four-wheelers. They like going rock climbing, or, or, and they just like going into the most difficult places with these huge trucks and Jeeps. Well, one day, I decided to get into this. I don't know any Indian people who do four-wheeling, but I thought I'd be the first one. So I said, okay. I got myself a Jeep, got a good price on it, and I was just, the Lord just really led. It was a Jeep Cherokee 2001, low mileage. I was really excited about this. And so what I began to do was to take this stock vehicle and I began to change parts in this stock vehicle. One of the things I did is that I took out the, the, stock, the stock tires and I placed size 35 uh, inch tires on there, okay? 35 inch, it was a big, I actually used to have size 36 prior to that. It took, I took them off because it was constantly rubbing against the tire weld. I put size 35 inch on these tires on this huge Jeep. I changed some of the engine. And you know what began to take place immediately? My gas bill went up, right? I used to have about 17, 18 miles to the gallon with this Jeep. Now I was getting 13 miles to the gallon. 13 miles to the gallon. In addition to that, the engine was actually having to work harder. You see, here's something to understand from a car manufacturer. When they produce a car, each one of these systems of the car are so designed in such a way to bring about the greatest amount of fuel efficiency, like if you're dealing with like an import, right? Or say like a Prius or something like that. Everything is designed to bring about the greatest amount of fuel efficiency, the size of the tires, the way the engine is. Any manipulation or change in that engine or in that car will lead to less fuel efficiency. So when God created this world, he created this world with the Sabbath, part of that system. And when there was a change in the Sabbath, it led to a breakdown in other parts of this planet. Can you say amen if you're tracking with me, yes or no? And so what took place with the change of the Sabbath, it began to lead to a breakdown in other systems of this world. In fact, what is very interesting, when you take a good look at the ministry of Jesus, you see the Bible says something very interesting in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, really just exemplifying what the ministry of Jesus was all about. Look what the Bible says right here in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How Jesus anointed who? How God anointed who? Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all. Take a good look at the two things that Jesus was doing. Number one, 
He was doing good. And number two, he was what? Healing. These two things were part of his ministry. Jesus was essentially, when he was doing good and healing, he was bringing heaven to people. He was bringing heaven to people. You know, a lot of people say, well, Jesus did two things. He did evangelism and he did miracles. Well, the purpose of those miracles, it was simply an avenue to healing. That was the purpose of those miracles. So what Jesus was doing was evangelism and healing. And that was part of his ministry. When Jesus went around all over Israel, this is what he was doing. Now, this is very important because you're seeing what Jesus' ministry was all about. It was about restoring in man the image of God that was lost through sin, through decay, through degeneration. Now, the early church had that same mission. When you read the book of Acts, you can read how they essentially had two things, two principles. They went about healing, and they went about doing evangelism. Over and over again in the book of Acts, you see these things taking place. Well, something took place at the end of the book of Acts. Paul starts giving warnings to the church, warnings to the early church, because he knew that when he would die and the last disciples would die, some unusual things would take place in the church. Paul actually warned to the Ephesian elders that when he was going to die, some people would try to come in. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking what? Perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul understood that when he would die, many of these false teachers would come into the church and the devil, using these teachers, would attempt to destroy the church from within. Now, this is a very important point. In fact, when you read the epistles that John wrote, do you know John was the, the longest living disciple? You guys know that, right? He was also the youngest disciple. He lived, he outlived all the other disciples. As far as I know, every other disciple was killed. But this is one disciple who probably died of natural causes. They attempted to kill him. In fact, there are some extra biblical sources that show that they actually tried to dip John in burning oil. And when he came out unscathed, they actually sent him to the island of Patmos where he had that vision of revelation. But this is very interesting. John, when in his latter years, when he was writing the epistles of John, when you read about it, he's constantly having to deal with certain false teachers who were known as Gnostics. You can already see what's happening at the church. All these disciples are, falling, are, are dying and are dead. And what's happening is Satan is sending his, his uh, messengers into the church. And the church is starting to face so many problems as it's starting to grow more and more. And so that's why in John's letters over and over again, he's dealing with the Antichrist spirit. He's dealing with these Gnostic teachers. But Paul warned about this, and he says, look, when I am gone, this is what's going to happen to the church. He said, savage wolves are going to enter in, and they're going to destroy the church. They're going to destroy the church. And sure enough, after the last disciple died in the second to third century, what began to take place false teachings started happening in the early church. Specifically, there was two false teachings. Number one, 
it was the change of the Sabbath. In fact, we usually quote from AD 321 when Emperor Constantine changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. That was the public declaration the Sabbath was changed. But did you know many false teachers prior to that time were already attempting the change? They were already attempting the change. But what is also very interesting was that there was a focus on the immortality of the soul. You see, a lot of Greek philosophy began to enter into Christianity. And what took place was you had various church fathers like Origen and other individuals who began to place a special focus upon the mind or soul to the point where they were saying, that the body is completely evil. In fact, that's what led to a lot of uh, monasticism or these monks coming about. He was also saying that the earth is evil, that the earth is completely sinful, that the body is so bad. And that's why a lot of these monks, they would go into these uh, sort of these uh, monasteries and they would whip themselves because they were trying to destroy their body and just really just focus on the mind. So these two errors entered into the early church. It was a removal of the Sabbath, and it was a focus on the immortality of the soul. Now, this is something that was uh, written by uh, Siegfried Tonsted, who's a scholar with Andrews. Look what he says right here, talking about the early church. The melody of Christ and his creation was silenced in the Christian church early in its history. Disparagement of the Sabbath, as in the writings of origin, went hand in hand with repudiation of the body and the neglect of the earth. If attention to nature ground, if attention to nature ground almost to a halt, it was owed in part to the fact that the ideological framework to value nature was lacking. Remember what the purpose of Sabbath is. Who does Sabbath draw us to? The Creator and His creations. And so with no longer a focus on the Sabbath, there was no point to focus on the creator or his creations. The study of nature, the study of the organism, the study of the body began to cease. In fact, when you take a good look at Catholic theological schools during that time, they placed theology as a priority and science as secondary to the point where science, part of science was actually being outlawed. Because they believed it was all about the mind and the soul and about spirituality, and they were completely neglecting the body. In fact, look what Ellen White says in Great Controversy. For centuries, Europe had made no progress in what? Learning, arts, or what? Civilization. A moral and intellectual paralysis had fallen upon Christendom with the Bible being outlawed, with the Sabbath no longer being kept, with the focus on the mind, the immortality of the soul, all of a sudden culture, all of a sudden the arts, all of a sudden everything that had to do with sort of a, a development of the mind and body was soon lost sight of. In fact, what is so remarkable, look what uh, Siegfried Tonset says right here. Belief in the immortality of the soul was a key factor in the Christian estrangement from material world. This view led to a diminished interest in nature because concern for the body brings no apparent spiritual benefit. The body is only the prison of the soul. Why explore it? The earth has no place in God's ultimate reality. He's going to destroy it. Why study it? And this became the framework of the ideology that was persisting during the Dark Ages into the Middle Ages. In fact, 
Look what else he says right here. Thus the groundwork was laid for a millennium of indifference towards the body and the natural world. With time, this outlook resulted in unprecedented helplessness in matters of what? Health and disease. Why? Because they were no longer studying science. People not only lacked rudimentary understanding of health and hygiene, they did not take the kind of interest in the physical world that could have led to insight. Why were they no longer interested in studying nature? Because they removed the Sabbath focus on creation. In fact, what's really interesting, when you take a good look at medical uh, and medical science during the Dark Ages into the Middle Ages, scholars and historians have noted over and over and over again, it was completely repressed. It was held back because they thought it was sinful and evil. In fact, I found out many historical quotes about some of the medical practices during the Dark Ages. Take a good look at this. Beyond belief, 2,000 years of bad faith in the Christian church. James McDonald, look what he said. In Christendom from AD 300 to around 1700, all serious mental conditions were understood as symptoms of demonic possession. You got a cold, you got a demon in you. Since illness was thought to be caused by supernatural agents, cures had to be essentially supernatural as well. Every, every cure was literally miraculous, and these miracles could be affected only by prayer, penance, and the assistance of who? Saints. To claim otherwise was heretical and blasphemous. In fact, take a good look at what else he says right here. The practice of medicine was monopolized by the church, so laymen who practiced it became criminals. Then the church stopped certain clergymen practicing it as well. Monastic medicine was prohibited by the synod of Clermont in 1130. Thenceforth, the practice of medicine was reserved to the secular clergy. A generation later, in 1163, the Council of Tours interpreted the maximum ecclesia aberrat sanguine, which means the church abhors the shedding of blood, as meaning that no churchman could practice surgery. No churchman could practice surgery. It was illegal. They thought it was evil and sinful. They actually outlawed it during the Middle Ages into the Dark Ages. In fact, look what else he says. Cures were still carried out using exorcism, consecrated bells, relics, biblical readings, holy water, and torture. The insane were still regarded as possessed by evil spirits. When Joanne Weyer explained that mental illness was the real cause underlying the symptoms that had been attributed to witches and evil spirits, the church denounced him and his book was placed on the index. He himself was accused of witchcraft and was obliged to flee for his life. This is what was uh, taking place during the Dark Ages. You can see there was this repression of scientific study, basic rudimentary understanding of health. Watch what, he sells right, watch what he says right here. This is very interesting. Freelance anatomy for original research was illegal. Scientists like Leonardo da Vinci were obliged to carry out their an, ata, a, autonomical, I'm saying that wrong right now, anatomical, thank you very much, research in secret. That's why when you take a good look at a lot of Leonardo da Vinci's works, it's done in secret. You have mirror writing taking place. You have a lot of stuff that was hidden that was discovered 100 to 200 years later. Why? Because it was illegal to study the human body in such a way. 
Look what else he says. Leonardo's famous mirror writing was used to disguise his findings in case the church authorities found out about them. His notes were not published for more than 200 years after his death. Michelangelo was another secret... Oh, my goodness, I am having... That word is just not in the Indian vocabulary. Okay. Autonomous. Very good. Did I say it wrong? Anonymous. Thank you very much. He apparently managed to work some of his anatomical, very good, discoveries into his art, including, now watch this, the creation of Adam, a section of his fresco in the Sistine Chapel ceiling. In fact, when you're studying out the Sistine Chapel, you can actually see some of his studies of the human brain as part of the artwork. People who would look at it would not realize, but anyone who had a scientific mind or a mind who was thinking would say, wait just a minute. That's the human brain. A lot of this stuff was done in secret. Do you remember when Galileo began to discover some things about our solar system? What did the church do? Persecute him. Why? Because it was illegal to think outside of their simple framework. Now, some of you are still thinking to yourself, wait a minute. What does this have to do with atheism? Let's keep going. Watch what else he says right here. Bishops licensed all manner of medical practice from surgery to physics and midwifery, which gave them control of all these disciplines. Bloodletting was still the standard treatment for all manner of ills in the 16th century and would continue to be for another three centuries. Anyone who suggested that the ancient Hippocratic medical techniques might be superior risk charges of heresy when per... Pierre Brissot of Paris advocated Hippocratic techniques. He was considered a worse heretic than Martin Luther. This other individual, the professor of medicine at, um, what is that? Bologna? It smells like, it smells, it smells like bologna right now. Used skin grafts for plastic surgery. He was charged with impiety, and his rhinoplasty operations were prohibited. His technique was not revived until 1822. Sometimes it is difficult to tell what advances might have been made. In Christ, I'm having difficulty with his Italian names. Do we have an Italian here? Okay. Very good. We'll just call him Christian Rest. A work for which he was burned at the stake in 1553, Michael Servetus mentioned pulmonary circulation, realizing the function of the lungs three generations before William Harvey, who is now generally credited with discovering the circulation of blood. By the Middle Ages, medicine had regressed on all fronts in Christian lands. Muslims who came into contact with Christians, as Usama of Shazar did during the Crusades, were shocked by the crudity of their medicine, and it was not only medicine, but public health too. Well, what were they shocked at? Look what he says. Whereas Muslims adopted public baths and insisted on washing before meals, Christians adopted the view that it was wrong to wash. It was flying in the face of God to presume to clean off his honest Christian filth. They're like, oh, brother, you, you, what you're doing, you're washing your hands. Oh, God can't clean you? They would lay these guilt trips on people. And so washing became a rare thing. Christians were obliged to accept the will of God and the disease and misery that went with it. Queen Elizabeth I was famously said to have bathed twice a year, whether she needed it or not. Can you imagine what she smelled like? But see, these were the things that were taking place. Why? 
because you had an institution that was repressing, number one, the Sabbath, and was focusing on the immortality of the soul. And by the way, did you know those two concepts we're told are going to play a key part at the end of time? Those two same things. You can see the effect it had upon the world shortly after the early church. What took place? By the removal of this special institution that was a focus on the Creator and His creation, and the focus upon the immortality of the soul, it began to lead to some egregious errors in the world. Here's what else he says. Useful research was not possible why the church exercised control. In fact, the church's ignorance had often made medical problems all the greater. When plagues and other epidemics swept through Europe, devout Christians gathered in churches to pray for deliverance. In doing so, they permitted the infection to spread that much faster and suffered high mortality rates as a result. Christians in some French towns confined local prostitutes to leper houses during the Holy Week. We can only guess at the consequences of this particular act of piety. You were a prostitute. During this time, we're going to put you in the leper house. So you can see the ignorance that was prevailing and what took place when that church and that state had combined and the repression that happened. Ladies and gentlemen, God's system is extremely perfect. Can you say amen to that? And we need to go back to what he has created. The Black Death, also known as the Black Plague, entered through this. This is actually a placard at that port in England. 1348, through this port, what you had, you had this very interesting ship. It was called the Messina, and it was coming in, and it was a plague ship. They would not let the plague people onto the, into the English land, but you know what they allowed? Their supplies. And with their supplies came rats. And you know what came with those rats? <laughs> Fleas. And you had the bubonic plague. And you know what happened? It began to sweep so much through Europe, okay? Shortly, 30 million People were dead. Eventually, it got up to, to as high as almost 200 million people. England's population was wiped out. This is, the, this is sort of the, the, you can say, the climax of ignorance. Now you're saying, well, what's the climax of ignorance right here? Because when you take a good look at what was happening during that time, basic health procedures would have solved the problem. Basic scientific knowledge would have saved millions from dying. This was the climax of what was happening when you remove what God has placed there from the beginning and you begin to insert errors. In fact, look what it says right here. During the, these years, the population dropped by as much as 50%, in some locations, much higher. The plague continued to exist into the 15th century and with much with less intensity in the 16th and 17th century. And you begin to take a good look at some of the pictures that were painted during that time. Plague, it was just completely wiping out people. They had dead bodies all over the streets. They didn't know what to do with them. People were dying left and right because of this plague, and it was infecting everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, we're just thinking, okay, we just know about history when we read about it in the history books, and we say, yeah, there was a black plague. Do you understand? We are talking to a close to 200 million people were killed by this plague. Half a country's population was wiped out. Imagine if something like that happened to the United States of America. 
Half the population completely wiped out by disease? This was such a great thing that was taking place. In fact, look what uh, Tonson says right here. Historians of medicine have looked to the prevailing Christian view of the world at that time as a contributing factor. In other words, where they were at in medical knowledge and science was a contributing factor to why that disease was so rampant and could not be stopped. The unfathomable disaster could not be attributed to accident. Scholars account for the absence of even rudimentary insights by the fact that the universities of that time were under the jurisdiction of the church, which was suspicious of discovery and novelty. Compared to theology, medicine was seen as a secondary science. Thus, medieval understanding was hamstrung by its most basic belief. And ladies and gentlemen, when this was coming down to a, a, a closure, at the end of the reign of, of the popery, of the papacy, what began to happen, a movement started, and this movement was known as the French Revolution. A lot of people, a lot of intellectuals and philosophers and politicians were so angry by the way that the church state was suppressing people and by the ignorance that was really pressed upon the people that they began to rise up and you had what was known as the French Revolution. And this took place with just at the end of the... Uh, End of, the seven, or end of the 1700s and going into the 1800s, you had this great movement known as the French Revolution, and it was during this time that many people began to be atheistic. They were so upset at the way that church was running the world at that time that they actually swung the pendulum and they said, you know what, there is no God. In fact, what they did as they were marching through the streets and killing a lot of people, what they did, they actually took a local dancer, they popped her up in the middle of this parade, and they said, this is the goddess of reason. We are no longer subjecting ourselves to theology. We are now following reason. In fact, this is very interesting. Ellen White actually talks about several of the Catholic priests during that time, during the French Revolution, who actually said, you know what? We're going to join the crowd as well, and they became atheists. Look what she says right here. The constitutional bishop of Paris was brought forward to play the principal part in the most impudent and scandalous farce ever acted in the face of a national representation. He was brought forward in full procession to declare to the convention that the religion which he had taught so many years was in every respect a piece of priestcraft, which had no foundation either in history or sacred truth. He disowned in solemn and explicit terms the existence of the deity to whose worship he had been consecrated and devoted himself in future to the homage, homage of liberty, equality, virtue, and morality. He then laid on the table of his Episcopal decorations and received a fraternal embrace from the president of the convention. Several apostate priests followed the example of this prelate as well. In fact, she goes on a little bit more. Men publicly defied the king of heaven. Like the sinners of old, they cried, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High, Psalm 73, 11? But with blasphemous boldness, almost beyond belief, one of the priests of the new order said, God if you exist, avenge your injured name. I bid you defiance. You will remain silent. You dare not launch your thunders. Who after this will believe your existence? 
What an echo is this of the Pharaoh's demand, who is Jehovah, that I should obey his voice? I know not Jehovah. This is so interesting. You see what started taking place. A movement of atheism actually came at the end of the 1700s because of the result of the suppression and repression of knowledge and people. During the Dark Ages, you actually had a religion that wanted to do nothing with science, and then the pendulum swung, and at the beginning of the, 18th, at the 1800s, you now actually had a science that wanted nothing to do with religion. And this is what started taking place. This is when atheism started to just to go like a steamroller because they were so upset because of everything that was happening during the Dark Ages and Middle Ages because of the removal of the Sabbath and the focus on the immortality of the soul that it swung them the other way and they said, we want nothing to do with it. Here you can see from history, because of that removal of the, the Sabbath, because of the lack of focus on creation and the study of nature and the human body, it led to atheism. In fact, look what Ravi Zacharias says in his book, Beyond Opinion. Historically, the real growth of atheism is to be dated from the 18th century, which we just talked about. The French Revolution propelled atheism to center stage. For many in modern Europe, religion was an oppressor. Atheism was a liberator. There is an important point to be learned here. Where the church is seen to be on the side of ordinary people, atheism has relatively little appeal. Still, the cultural appeal of atheism often seems to be determined by its social context rather than by anything intrinsic to its ideas. Where religion is said to oppress, confine, deprive, and limit, atheism is lauded for offering humanity a larger vision of freedom. And there you begin to see, from the, French, from the French Revolution, you begin to see individuals like Thomas Paine who begin to just denounce God through their writings. In fact, Ellen White talks about Thomas Paine in some of his writings. And you begin to hear about people like Voltaire who said, in, in just a few hundred years, the Bible will become an obsolete book. And you begin to hear about individuals like, it was during that time that Charles, Charles Darwin began to make his discoveries and he began to promote a theory known as evolution. And there you begin to have individuals during that time, like Karl Marx, who begin to just write some literature about atheism. And you have individuals like Friedrich Nietzsche, and you have Stalin, who also promoted in his country. And over and over again, you can see how this juggernaut of atheism took place as a result of the Dark Ages. In fact, Ellen White says a powerful quotation right here. Look what she says right here. It was popery that had begun the work, which what? Atheism was completed. We look in our world today and we see this modern movement that has started because of the removal of one of the institutions that God has placed there, the Sabbath. Ladies and gentlemen, we look in our world today and we see a world that has systems that are broken. We look in our world today and we see parts of it that are in complete chaos. Why? Because man has made it his choice to remove what God has placed there ultimately for the benefit of humanity. Like Jesus said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And ladies and gentlemen, when we take a good look in our world and we see this movement and we see a lot of people who want nothing to do with God, what we need to do is go back 
to do those two powerful fundamental principles and we will actually have a tool of reaching people who want nothing to do with God. Do you know we are told over and over again about our health message, how powerful it is? And she talk, Ellen White talks about how when we do cooking schools and health presentations, she says, thinking men will come to these presentations. They will come to our restaurants. They will come to what we're doing in regards to health, and they will start wondering why we are doing what we are doing, and it will lead them to following God. And did you know the Sabbath can play a part in winning people too? In a world that is full of stress and anxiety, I was just talking to two young ladies, that when you go out into the city, there's just a general irritation. And you realize that general irritability when you leave the city and you're going to places like Weimar where everything is just peaceful. I grew up in Southern California irritated, stress. You look at people's faces, and you know, I just did a series in Mountain View, which is like the Bay Area, and you just see, you know, I was driving this big old like farm truck and these little BMWs, you know, I felt like an elephant going through a flower bed, and everyone's just so busy, but there was just this look of anxiety on people's faces. They're concerned about everything that is happening. There's all these pressures that are coming from a variety of sources, but when you take a good look at the Sabbath, it actually is appealing to people. A day of rest? Now, here's the thing. How do we communicate the Sabbath to people who may want nothing to do with religion? How did God go about witnessing with the Sabbath message? Well, I'll show you. Take your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. There's some extra Bibles in the back if you need some. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Second chapter of the Bible. What's interesting about Genesis chapter 1, you have an abridged version of creation, and Genesis chapter 2 is actually a focus on God's favorite part of creation, mankind and the Sabbath. Let's see what happens in Genesis chapter 2. Take a good look at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were what? Finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day which he, from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Now I want you to pay attention to this. I'm going to ask you a good question right now. When did God bless and sanctify the Sabbath? Should be obvious. When did God bless and sanctify the Sabbath? Okay, what did you say? Okay, you say when he finished his work. Okay, anybody else? From the foundation of the earth? Okay, very good. Okay, that's very good. Do you guys hear what he just said? He actually blessed and sanctified the Sabbath after he rested. In other words, Adam and Eve, when they were keeping the Sabbath with God, the very first Sabbath, they didn't even know it was blessed and sanctified. In other words, it was through experience that God was communicating the beauty of the Sabbath. 
And as Adam and Eve begin just to enjoy all the things that God had created, at the end of it, God says, by the way, did you know that this day I have blessed and sanctified? This day is actually a special day that you're going to get to keep every seventh day. Now, why is that important for us? One of the best ways you can win people to the Sabbath is by keeping the Sabbath with them, with them not knowing it's the Sabbath yet. So what do you mean? So Friday nights where I go to church, I actually have a young adult Bible study and we have some home-cooked food. Oftentimes I will invite new people, whether I'm taking a class or whether I meet people, and I'll say, hey, come on out to this Bible study. You're going to love it. It's informal and there's good food to eat. So they're coming there, and they're enjoying it, and we have some nice music, and we have just a wonderful discussion, and someone brings out some desserts. Always good to have something sweet on the Sabbath. Amen? And they're just enjoying it, okay? They're just enjoying it. At the end of it, I'll say, by the way, hey, I'm preaching tomorrow. You're invited to come, man. Love to have you. Just come on by. Sure, I'll come by. They're coming by. They come to church. Then I say, hey, there's going to be a special lunch at my house. I want you to show up. What else you got to do today? Okay, I'll come on by. They go there, we're done, we go take a walk out in nature. There's a park nearby that has a little stream. Let's go for a walk. We're all done. Sabbath's coming to a close, invite some friends over. We close and have Vespers. Then, you know what we do Saturday night, like many Adventists? We have board games. Popcorn and board games. And fruit and smoothies. I remember Weimar. And you know what they say? This is just a special day. I just really enjoyed spending time with good people and fellowshipping. There just seemed to me, one person communicated to me, there just seemed to be something peaceful about this time. Do you see what's happening? When you teach the Sabbath through experience, people will really love the Sabbath because then they begin to realize there is something special about this day. Why do you think most people go out to spend time with their family? What day do they do it? It's not Sunday. They'd love to spend time with their family on Saturday many times. They love to go out to the movies on Saturday. Why? Because there is this general feeling that the week is done and I just want to rest. It's in the heart of humanity, ladies and gentlemen. And as we give people opportunities to just to spend the Sabbath with us, you know what begins to take place? They start loving it. They start enjoying it. In fact, you know what's really interesting? We're told something very special about the Sabbath that we haven't experienced yet. Do you know there's still a special blessing on the Sabbath that most people have not experienced yet? Most Adventists. Look what Ellen White says right here. I saw that we sensed and realized but little of the importance of the Sabbath to what we yet should realize and know of its importance and glory. I saw we knew not what it was yet to ride upon the high places of the earth and to be fed with the heritage of Jacob. Do you know where she's quoting from? She's quoting from Isaiah 58, verse 13, where God says, if you stop doing your own work, your own pleasure, and speak your own words, but do my works and speak my uh, words and do my pleasure, she says, the Bible says, that you will ride upon the high places of the earth and be fed with the heritage of Jacob. In other words, when you keep the Sabbath, go the way that God wants you to keep it, you'll reap a powerful blessing. And you know what she is saying? We haven't got that blessing yet. Why? We're not keeping it God's way. 
But when the refreshing and latter rain will come from the presence of the Lord, that's a reference obviously to the latter rain, and the glory of his power, we shall know what it is to be fed with the heritage of Jacob. We don't even know what that blessing is yet. And right upon the high places of the earth, then we shall see the Sabbath more in its importance and glory. Ladies and gentlemen, an institution that was lost, that was pulled out of the framework that has led to chaos in this world and this planet and movements that should not have existed. God is calling us back into the field, armed with the Sabbath, armed with the beautiful message of health. And through these tools, we're going to be able to reach people who want nothing to do with God. Just to recap and close, here we can see from the early church and their removal of the Sabbath and the focus on the immortality of the soul that it has led to the repression of science, understanding, rudimentary understanding of health. And that eventually climaxed with the, the Black Plague and shortly after, and the result of that was the French Revolution. As I said before, people had a religion with nothing to do with science, and now the pendulum swung, and they had a science they, that wanted nothing to do with religion. And since that time, things have progressed. But God is calling us back to bring back those special things that were lost because of sin. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I know what we have heard today is but seeds. Seeds of change. And God, Lord, help us to really think upon these things and what we can do to reach the people around us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.